the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I'm glad that you're here today because I'm going to begin a brand new series. And it's always good to be at the beginning of the series because I like to lay the foundation first before we really start building the building. And the series that we're going to call is the series on the DNA of a healthy church. Now some of you might ask, why would I speak on that? Well, let me tell you, it's not because I believe that our church here is an unhealthy church. So it's not trying to correct the problem. It's more trying to instruct us so that we'll know where we are and where we really need to go. Now, it's very easy for me to launch into a passage of Scripture such as Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47, which I will read to you in a moment. That will give you the early template of the New Testament church as it was just born. And that's a good one to go back to because in Scripture we understand what they call the hermeneutics of first mention principle, which means go back to the first time something is mentioned so you can get a full understanding of what it's all about. I will read you that passage of Scripture. Once I finish reading you, showing you what the New Testament church looked like at its very beginning, of its very birth, I'm not going to just start there because I believe that the child, we might call it, was not just begun when it was born, that the child was begun at the inception. And of course, we know with human beings that we're all in God's mind before we're divinely placed in our mother's womb. So in time, God had us all to be born. So today, my main thrust is not so much to teach you what the New Testament church should look like so we can become more like that. That's going to come in weeks to come, and I'm going to slow that message down, that part of the series down, so we can really dig a little bit deeper, not just give it a lick and a promise, three points in a poem. But today, though, I am going to be a little bit deeper in the sense that I want to go through some of the history of the church and how it's related in Scripture. So I'm going to ask you as much as possible if you'll pay as close attention and you'll lean into this message because the foundation is going to be laid of just before the church was born. Now, that being said, it would be like you ladies who would have a child within you. When you are first pregnant, you don't immediately deliver that child. What you take is a nine-month period. Well, I'm not going to take nine months to lay the foundation of the church before we get into it. But I want you to know that there is a lot happening before the church has its birth. And it's that truth that is so important for you to understand when we become that church, like the New Testament says, that is built upon the richness of truth that is so deep, which then will show you that it's not just, oh, here's a church and I'm a part of that club and I go to that church over there, that denomination. It becomes something that is so rich and so important. 
So if you have your Bibles now, I at least want to let you know where we're going to head in the weeks to come, and then I'm going to come back to the foundation. So open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading to you in verse 41, and you may remain seated if you'd like. If you came without a Bible, we have Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. You certainly can pick one out if you want to. It's on page 93 in the New Testament. If you didn't have a Bible and you want to scoot next to someone who does and make a friend, you can certainly do that, but turn to Acts chapter 2. While you're turning to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, I'd like to just kind of give you a couple of reasons why I love the church, and I'd love to develop this into a message, uh, because the church means so much to me. First of all, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, and I hope every day that I'm loving Him more, and I hope that every day I'm loving Him more consistently. But my second love affair is going to be with the church. I really love the church. Now, when you talk about the church, I'm going to divide the church into two categories. The first church would be the one that's universal all over the world, made up of everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ by faith alone, whatever local assembly they're in or not, whatever country they're in or not, as long as they're a part of the universal church. I love them. But folks, I really do love you. I wish I could demonstrate it even more to you. I love every one of you. I care for each one of you. When I hear things that are going on, I just, in my heart, I want to watch for your soul and then the souls of others that you might be bumping into. I really care for you. Now, some of you are saying, wait, Pastor, shouldn't you really love your wife? The Bible says husbands love your wife. Where does she fit in all of this? Well, I think you can deduce from this. She's part of the church. So I love her like I love the church. However, there's a difference. She's first in line, okay? So I love her first. And I have to go home with her. But anyway, so I want you to know I love the church. Now, why do I love the church? Well, the greatest reason I love the church is because the church is built upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember, God loves the church through Christ. Jesus gave his life for you and me, one who was not necessary in his own self to have to die for the sins of others. He did everything so we could be a part of his forever family. So I love the church because it's built upon Jesus Christ. The next reason I love the church is because the church is the earthly manifestation of what we might call the body of Christ. In the sense that however Christ would live here, loving others, serving others, telling others about how to have a relationship forever with Him, it is all threaded through other believers. And so I love this because we see the body of Christ in action on planet earth. Or at least we should, and we'll be teaching us how to do that in a moment, or next week or so. The third reason I love the church is because through this church here, and this is going to be hard for maybe some of us to understand, but it's through this church that we can have a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. In other words, if I want to see what heaven's going to be like, I ought to be able to see it somewhat through the church. And let me see if I could explain it this way. In heaven, I will be there forever, praising and worshiping the Lord, giving all adoration and worship to God. And so we do that in the church. So we have a little bit of heaven in the church. And so I love the church because it brings a little bit of heaven down here and prepares me for there. The next thing, in heaven, there's going to be nothing but those who already have trusted Christ as their Savior. It's only going to be filled with those who have trusted Christ. They would be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I love the church and you all because it's a little bit like heaven here because we're going to be together. And then I love the church 
because it's so much like heaven because in heaven we'll have the knowledge of God. Now, I don't have all the knowledge of God, but I am so grateful that I have the knowledge of God as it's recorded in Scripture of what He wants me to know here and He gives me Himself, the Holy Spirit, to help me to understand this word here. So I love the church because it's built upon Christ. I love the church because it's like looking at Christ and watching him operate right here. I love the church because it's a little bit of heaven right here on earth with us operating in such a way as we might in heaven. Now that I said that, before I launch into this passage of scripture, you'll notice I ended on the knowledge of the word. Some of you are maybe outside the faith who are listening to me this morning. But you're listening because you're a little inquisitive of what the Christians believe and, and uh, what, what is their faith system really all about. Well, let me first of all tell you, please do not listen to late night comedians to tell you what the church is like. I would even caution you on a lot of what you hear on radio, although I am on radio or TV, it's best for you to get right into God's word. Now, with that being said, we who are Christians... We have chosen to become a Christian based on what we know from God's word, which means, ultimately, we are trusting the veracity of Scripture. In other words, I'm depending upon God's word to be accurate, and so when it talks to me, it's going to tell me accurately all about God and life and all of that eternity right here. So I'm really depending upon this book being true in order for me to set aside my entire life forever. So now... The question is, is how do I know that the Bible is the true inspired word of God so that when I listen to it, it is truth? Now, I don't have a time to go into that little tangent, but that is huge. I know the Bible is true scientifically, prophetically. I know it's true archaeologically. I know it's true because the veracity of the language has been around for so long. We can trust it today. I know it's true because of all the things necessary with prophecy and science and all the rest. That being said... I urge you to go to a good class that will show you how you could know the Bible's inspired so that when you listen to Scripture, all of a sudden it really will be almost listening to the audible voice of God, although you'll be reading the written word of God, His mind on paper. So that's why I trust the word because it's been proven objectively as well as subjectively to be true. I'm not just blindly leaping with my faith into a book that might be right. People say it's right. I really don't know, but who cares? It's the best I got. I really know why I believe it. So now that being said, what does a New Testament church look like and what should our church look like? I'm going to read through that quickly. I'm not going to comment on any of that because that's where we're going to head future so you at least know that's where we need to go. Today it's going to be foundational. So let me read through this passage beginning at verse 41 through verse 47 and you can follow along and here's what it says. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls, parentheses, to the church. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as many as might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, folks, I have to tell you that 
I'm kind of like a, a horse in a, in a race, and I want to get out, and I want to go into this passage and start teaching it right now. I'm so excited about it. But to do it justice, we have to go back to what we call the first mentioned principle of the church. When and where was the church first mentioned in Scripture? Not oddly, it was mentioned first by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have your Bibles there, you're going to go to the first book of the New Testament, and you're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16. So go quickly to Matthew chapter 16, because Jesus is now going to begin to unveil the, uh, the aspect of the church. In fact, I would lightly, and I hope this would not be sacrilegiously, say that he is kind of letting everybody know <clears throat> that, uh, that a pregnancy has occurred. All right, if you know what I'm saying. Something's about to happen. So if you will, follow along in Matthew chapter 16. And it goes with a question and answer where Jesus is asking Peter and the other apostles of certain things. And so finally he said, uh, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? In other words, uh, justifying the fact that Jesus is God. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If this is your Bible, by the way, mark that. Because everything you need to know about the Godhead is right there. Jesus is God. All right? He's not just a prophet from God. He's not just a good man. He's not just the founder of Christianity. All right? He is God, Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we've already talked about how that the Son and God could all be one. Verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now you've got the whole deity going on here. In verse 18, he says, I also say to you, in other words, I'm not finished talking to you yet, Peter. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I need to pick this apart a little bit. This particular verse is often used by the Roman Catholics to determine that the church started on the foundation of Peter. And they do that because it seems like in the English, when it says, you are Peter and upon this rock, I'll build my church, it must be referring to Peter. Well, you really need to go through many scriptures to be able to see a more technicolor so you don't just take a quick little snapshot and, and then only have an inaccurate understanding. So going back to this, he says, you are Peter. Now, that's really not necessary for him to say, you are Peter, as it's translated here, because he already knows who he is. I'm Peter. We already know that Jesus was talking to Peter, so it's been established. So it must not necessarily be the person's name. So he's referring to something else. Now, here's where it gets into languages. You have different um, English words for different Greek words. Well, in this context, there are two Greek words that stands for something hard. One of them is a Greek word that represents a little stone, we might say, a little rock. Another word, very similar, is one that represents a big rock, a big stone. So if you remove the word Peter out of this, because Peter does mean little rock, now you're going to understand that there's a contrast going on here between a little stone and a big stone. Now let's go to verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, the little stone. And upon this rock, which is a different Greek word, which means this huge rock, I will build my church. So he's not saying I'm going to build my church on a little pebble like you, Peter. He's saying I'm going to build my church on a big rock. And of course, we know that to be Christ. I will build my church 
And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll talk about that in a moment. Those of you that want to go a little bit further, I don't have time for this, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And in that whole context, it's talking about Jesus Christ being the rock. And that's why we know even in this writing, he's the rock. But other scriptures agree that this is the rock upon which he builds his church. Now let's rewind the tape a little bit. And as we go backwards, you'll notice I said, I love the church because it was built upon the foundation, upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And that's coming from this passage of scripture. So Jesus starts out by saying, this whole church is all about me. Boy, that's a sermon in itself. But now it doesn't just end there. Look at the last part of this because now it's going to say something to you and me on a practical level. Look at verse, the end of the verse. It says, and the gates of Hades which would be like another term to say, no matter how much hell is unleashed upon us. Now you can get specific, which would be Satan and his angels, his demons, etc. Or you could say, no matter how bad earth gets, no matter how bad your life gets, no matter what is thrown at you, it will not overpower it. It referring to the rock and the church. Now look up here for just a moment. In order for the, the... the, the gates of hell, not to come against the church, and I'm saying it's you, it's because you became a part of the church, not by joining and going to a new members class, etc. Oh yeah, that's the kind of stuff you might do to go to a local church so they know who to put in the directory and who not and where you are and how we can get in touch with you, etc. That's all legitimate stuff. You do that when you want to, when you vote, you got to register. When you join a military, you got to sign up. When you want to do something, uh, get married, you have to find, sign a license. That's all local stuff. But to be a part of God's church and Jesus being the rock, that's happening through being born again. You're born into that church. You're not born because your parents are that way. You're not born because you did something yourself like good works to get born. It's something that is sovereignly done to you the moment you trust Christ as Savior. So you become a part of the church. Are you tracking with me so far? All right, now catch what I'm about to say. Because I've got to now define the actual word church. I wish I had months to teach this, but those of you that want to go further, take the concept of the church and run it through the grid of the Old Testament. The church as we know it in the New Testament is not found in the Old Testament. Some of the functionality of the church is found in the Old Testament in the sense that the word church means, and I'm going to be real simple, it means a called out assembly. If you want to reduce it, To a word, you could use the word mob. A mob is a called out assembly, a flash mob or whatever. It's a group of people coming together for a particular reason. And so you would see Old Testament, those kinds of coming togethers with the people. But that's not the church in the Old Testament. So the church means a called out, expanding the definition, a called out group of believers in Christ. For as we know through the rest of Scripture, no one is a part of the church unless they are born again into the church by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. They become a part of the church. And so the Lord is now saying, in a sense, I'm being a little sacrilegious, you're now pregnant. Now, those of you that were, quote, pregnant for the first time... Did you know all that you know now about being pregnant and what it is to have kids? If that's the case, you knew all then what you know now. Would you say, "Uh uh-huh? All you single people, all right? I'm not marginalizing single people, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's normal. You're looking at someone like that. Carol and I, we have three kids, all right? We've adopted every single one of them. The youngest we had were seven years old, so we know nothing about pregnancy. We know nothing about 
morning sickness. We know nothing about being up at night and doing bottles, but we sure know a lot about having three kids that were damaged that we took in. And the very first thing is, why do we have to do this? Why can't we do that? And so we went right into the question stage. I said all that to say this. When Jesus spoke about the church in Matthew, we didn't know a whole lot about it. All we knew is that he set it up. First truth is, it's built on Jesus Christ. Second truth is, here it is, one word. Prevalent. Prevalent means that it will never, ever, 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 ever be destroyed. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what blank happens in your life, I want you to know that nothing will separate you from the love of God. I don't care how much the world gets. As long as you become a Christian, you are part of the church. You're a part of Christ. You're embedded into the rock of Christ. And nothing can separate you from that. So when you go today and you go home and you... Get up in the morning, students, and you're facing some bullies at school. Yeah, they might pick at you. They might condemn you. They might trip you. They might knock you down. They might grab your backpack. But they will never prevail against your soul and spirit. You rise above that in Christ. So I want you to know that's part of the church. Now, there's another mention of the church again in Matthew chapter 18. Let's go there very quickly. Matthew chapter 18. In this passage of Scripture, that's the only second time it's mentioned in the Gospels before we get right to the birth of the church. And um, when I look at this in Matthew 18, I look at this here and how important it is for us to be in love with each other and caring for one another. But I want you to look at verse 17. Well, let's pick it up at verse 15. It says, If your brother sins as a Christian... You go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, here it is, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, that means all the brothers and sisters are now speaking against this one who now has done the sin. Let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, treat him as if he isn't a part of the church. And look up here, if you will, for a moment. I want to spend a lot more time in another sermon about that. Not so much about the mechanics of going, and this is how you deal with an errant brother, blah, 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 blah. That's all very critical as, as mechanics. And, and I don't want to, I'm not minimizing the mechanics. They're there for a reason. They need to be followed to the letter of the mechanics stated there. But there's something bigger in this passage. What that's speaking to is that the church is built upon Christ. It's the body of Christ, and that verse is teaching the importance of the preservation of the unity and the love and the strength in the local church. Because it is so important, watch this, it is so important by having that strength to show to the world that together we glorify God. Together we serve one another. Together we're strong or stronger to be able to help the world. We're lovers, not fighters. And to do that, we come together. And he's saying, I need to preserve the church for that reason. So all the mechanics are there that's important, but there's a bigger lesson in there. And the bigger lesson is the importance is of the health, the harmony, and the unity of the body of Jesus Christ, that rock. That's what he's saying. Now that being said, now the question is, is okay, how did the church kind of get born? What was that little birthing time? Now you want to go to Acts chapter 1. And we're just going to stay in Acts chapter 1 and 2 until I run out of time around 4 o'clock today. Just joking. Maybe not. I will just go until I run out of time, though. I want you to take up at verse 1. Those of you that are kind of new to the experience of biblical Christianity... um, Another principle and accurate interpretation is this, that there is, there is one 
proper interpretation of the verse, the word, the context, the passage, etc. There's one proper one. And there are many applications of it. And the applications are okay as long as they do not um, take away from the accurate interpretation of this passage. And watch. As long as the application doesn't become the interpretation of the passage. You catch what I'm trying to say here? So you've got to go back to the passage. Now, I believe that while they title this book Acts of the Apostles, I really think it's more Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's more of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people to bring them into God's church and then what God does through His church to reach the people. But it's all not about the Acts of the Apostles, somewhat Acts of the Apostles in the church, but far more Acts of the Holy Spirit Himself. It's all about God, always all about God. Do you agree with that? You've got to agree with that because it is. It's always about the Lord because He receives all the praise, the glory, and the honor of everything. Now go back to verse 1. All right. <clears throat> the writer of this is Luke. Luke was not one of the apostles, but he sure traveled with the apostle Paul and he was exposed to the teachings of Jesus. If you count all the words that are found in the New Testament and you add them all up, you're going to find that Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than the apostle Paul. You'll win that on a Bible trivia. All right, although there's only two books, Acts and Luke, that Luke wrote, but all the words added up, Luke wrote more than Paul. Verse 1, that was free, by the way, that had nothing to do with my message. All right, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's now saying, I'm writing a, a track, I'm now telling you what I experienced, and this is what Jesus did, and I'm writing to you, Theophilus. Now, by the way, aren't you glad you weren't named by your mother, Theophilus? It sounds like Theophilus sandwich I've ever eaten, you know? All right, Theophilus. About all that Jesus began to do and teach. Would you underline the word began? Because there's so much the Lord is doing. Yes, his physical action of what he taught and did ended, when he ascended up to heaven, not when he resurrected, because there was a lot of good stuff, but he ascended, that ended. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.